hey, you know, do we think that there's other people like us that would enjoy this? And then, you know, there is some element of like going around and you know, you share the idea before you start spending a lot of money, you know, you can go kind of just test your thesis. And so you share the idea with people and you can just tell like, is it clicking? Do they like it? Are they laughing? Are they like stupid? This is dumb, you know? So everybody just was like, that sounds like a really funny concept for a game. And it convinced us to keep going. And then as you keep going and as you build momentum, you just start to feel more confident and the confidence builds and you're willing to take more risks, et cetera. Um, but you don't have to start out, you know, just, I don't know, you don't have to go all in out of the gate. Like you can take baby steps to start. All right. Today on The Climb, we had a good friend of mine join Michael and myself that uh, shares some of the success that he's had as an entrepreneur. Talks about how he makes his shift from call it corporate America into entrepreneurship in a number of different venues, and really how his whole focus is on his lifestyle and the quality of life that he's going to live with him and his family. And it's just a great conversation. We're thrilled to have Tim Swindle join Michael and myself today. Tim. Welcome to uh, the Klein Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, I think to get started, for the benefit of uh, all the listeners, can you give us a little background on on who Tim is and you know where you started and kind of where you sit today? Sure. So, uh, Tim Swindle, I live on the north side of Chicago, uh, married with a 10-month-old as of today and a dog. I went to University of Illinois, and I've started a couple of businesses and uh, recently exited a few of them and I'm on to, uh, to new ventures as we speak. Maybe start with, I think, your story, where you came you know, in school. I know you had an awesome time doing some travel abroad and then kind of bring us up to speed of where you, where you took that from, what you learned from that. Sure. So uh, my junior year at university was able to, fortunate enough to be able to go over to Sevilla, Spain for my second semester of junior year. And uh, it was, uh, I think, looking back on it, even today, uh, was probably the best three-month stretch of my life. Uh, I I peaked when I was, you know, 21 years old. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Uh, so we did it a little different, you know, a lot of folks that study abroad, they, they would kind of go on this journey, this solo journey and meet new friends and things like that. And ours was a little different where we just uprooted like eight to 10 of our best friends and just moved us over to, uh, to Spain for a semester. And it was, uh, it was just an incredible experience to kind of be, you know, off on our own, truly, you know, no parents that could drive down and, and show up at our dorm or anything like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we obviously were going to school, but it was, it was designed to, to get out and see Spain too, you know, your Monday to Thursday classes. And then we would, you know, go visit different spots in Spain on the weekends and things like that. So lived with a Spanish family, which is also a really cool experience. And uh, no, me no habla español. So that was also <laughs> unique. <laughs> Not really knowing a lick of Spanish. Uh, but I know, uh, you know, uno cerveza, por favor, and uh, donde está el baño. Kind of the only two things you need. 
that gets you through like two or three months in Spain right there. I right. mean, <laughs> comida, a few other yeah. things and you're all right. Well, because yeah. Tim, if, if you would have told me that that you were fluent in Spanish, I would have been answering uh, some tough questions at home with Anais as to why my Spanish <laughs> right. is not as good as it should be after six and a half years. Yeah, you need to you need to get on that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I think going to like how you found a job after that and all that, I think that story is really interesting because, you know, as we were talking the other day, how that's even shaped you to kind of where you are today. And, and there's some, some of those, as we talk about the crossroads to finding moments in, in those experiences. So as I was studying abroad in Spain, I was having a really good time and I happened to talk to my dad and just mentioned to him, listen, like I'm having a really good time over here. I would prefer not to come back to the States for summer. This was summer going into senior year. And, uh, he was like, you know, all right, let me, let me see what I could do. And he happened to, right after I got off the call with him, ran into our neighbor at the time, who was a, a partner at a trading firm. Uh, they're based in Chicago, but they had an office in London. And he mentioned to him how he just, you know, talked to Tim and Tim's in Spain and was in, looking for an internship. Do you guys have anything? So he put a call. This is all without me knowing this. Puts a call into <laughs> his partner over in London. And so a couple hours later, I get a call from this guy in London. It's like, hey, I'm I'm Dave with Marquette Partners. You know, we're gonna fly you over here for an interview to London and think about, you know, have you move here for the summer? And I'm just like, who's this? You know, <laughs> I've, been, I've been drunk for the past three months. Are you sure you? Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, and so it, it worked out that I did, you know, fly over there and uh, interviewed with the with the firm and uh, ended up just going straight from uh, Spain over to London for the summer. And then that worked out well. And they ended up hiring me basically right out of that program. Uh, so it was nice to kind of go into senior year, not being stressed about, you know, finding a job. And, and I had one lined up for the back end and ended up going, you know, moving back to London after graduation. That's awesome. And you, you loved London. I do. I, I did. I do. Uh, I, I hope to go back there to spend some time, some significant time, you know, with my family. Uh, that's definitely a goal of mine. I just think there's just so much that I owe to travel. And we can get into a little bit later, but I've done a, a few stints of extensive travel. And I think it's really shaped my view on the world and it's opened my eyes. And I think hopefully made me a much better person and a more interesting person. And I would love to share that, you know, with my kids, hopefully one day. You know, Tim, in, uh, in visiting with you prior to the podcast, kind of getting up to date, getting to know each other since that time, I've just been on this memory lane of my semester abroad in Granada just a couple of years before you and, you know, the impact that that had. I mean, it just changed everything. The whole world got a lot bigger. You mean there's there's more than Texas? Michael? Well, I mean, we, we all know everything's bigger in Texas, but um, it's okay. It takes a while to get out of the border, but when you do, it's, it's, it's a big world out there. And um, stumbling around the streets of the Albicene or going up to the Alhambra and thinking about and learning about the history and, you know, that being the, I mean, it's one of the eight wonders of the world, the last Morris stronghold and then Isabella Catolica and King Ferdinand come in and establish Catholicism down there. It was just like, this is so much older than anything in Texas or the United States for that matter. It just completely changed my mindset. 
Yeah, you're walking down streets that are older than our country, right? I mean, it just, uh, yeah, it's it's a eye-opening experience for sure. Yeah, it uh, it certainly changed the way I viewed things. And then talking about the opportunity to go back. So last spring, which marked 20 years since my semester abroad, I took my wife and kids and we went and sat in my old classroom and by the old apartment that I lived in. And of course, I couldn't show my 14-year-old and 12-year-old daughters everything that I experienced in Granada, but uh, we had a really good time going down memory lane and uh, and just showing them that. And we went over to Sevilla and had an amazing time up to Madrid. It was, I think, uh, carrying forward, I want to make sure that, you know, that my girls continue to understand that their little bubble is one thing, uh, but the world is a whole nother thing and it's fun to explore. Yeah, it's it's something I definitely am going to encourage, you know, of, of my daughter and if we have additional kids and then uh, anybody I speak to, I I am very close with my high school still. Uh, I went to high school here in Chicago at uh, San Ignatius College Prep and they invited me back uh, to speak to uh, the senior class. I don't know why they did it and uh, I'm still confused as to why I was invited. But I, I took it very seriously, and it was a huge honor as they were starting to kind of explore their path of going to college and what they wanted to do, et cetera. And my speech essentially revolved around studying abroad. And, and, and I just encouraged all of them as they're kind of going off on, you know, onto adulthood, that it's something that if they have the opportunity to, that, that it's, it's the best decision that, you know, I've ever made. And because I think what happens is when you're, you're in college and you've got your group good group of friends or if you're in a fraternity or sorority and you just kind of like become obsessed with this little world that you're a big fish in a small pond about. And uh, it's like, oh, you know, at U of I, the, the big bar was Cam's, right? So it's like, you're going to miss another Saturday night at Cam's, right? <laughs> Which like, was the exact same as the one before it, right? Yeah, exactly. And I had friends, you know, that unfortunately they, they, they had the opportunity to leave, but they were too sure that that life of cams right was was all they needed and i think it's sad to be honest and so anyway i just tried to share that little bit of uh, of advice with uh, these with these seniors well and tim we're i mean we're on the topic and instead of coming back like let's talk i mean you have you mentioned it you've done some extensive travel help us understand what that was like what it means to you how it shaped who you are and who tim is yeah, so so outside of that, uh, this kind of leads into a little bit of you know Tim later in life, and um, I was uh, a partner at a software company that we ended up selling uh, to LinkedIn, and at the same time, I had also started a board game company called Utter Nonsense, and with the acquisition, LinkedIn acquiring the software company. And then with having things in a good place with the, the board game company that I'd kind of intentionally set up to be a kind of a lifestyle business where I had low overhead, outsourced a lot of things, um, basically had one employee, which was my sister. And it allowed me to, uh, I basically had said, you know, I've been grinding for the past 15 years between, you know, all through my 20s. And then once I kind of jumped into entrepreneurship when I was 30, and I just said, you know, I need a break. And at the time, I was pretty serious with my girlfriend, probably knew that you know, getting engaged was somewhere in our future. So I just said, let's do it. 
And so we, we picked up and went and traveled kind of the southern hemisphere for uh, about six months. So we did like New Zealand, Australia, Southeast Asia, China, Japan, and then finished in Hawaii for three weeks. So it was a pretty incredible uh, trip. That's great. What was your favorite part of that? Is there a piece that like sticks out, a place or? Um, well, I mean, if I better, uh, if I don't say this, I'm going to be sleeping on the couch. Uh, <laughs> we, we got engaged in Bali and that was... So that was the best that was, part. That's all you need to say, there right? There you go. That we was got a great you. part. Uh, but I think, I think Japan would, I would say was, you know, the, the favorite as far as just places that we visited. Uh, I don't know what it is. I've even before going there have kind of had this romantic obsession kind of with Japan. I just, I felt like this weird kindred spirit and I don't necessarily believe in like, what is it? My, my wife's Indian. And so I'm, I'm going to, I'm butchering this, but, um, where it's like you're, you're rebirthed, right? And I was like, was I Japanese in a past, in a past life or something? Because it just felt like I was at home. Just the people, the culture, the food, just the energy, the vibe. You know, it was just it just felt good. So I I really enjoyed Japan. While we're on the topic of you racking up some brownie points, like I mean, how did you know that she was the one? Whew. We're getting deep here, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) We're not all surface level in Texas, man. I mean, there's a philosophical side to us, you know? Uh, So for me, I, uh, so I'm, I just turned 40 and at the time I was, I think 36. And so I think compared to the majority of my friends who had already been married and most had kids, it was a little later, you know, as far as uh, settling down, if you will. And I think for me, it was a timing thing. So I'll say, and I'll say this to her too. I think she knows this is that it's not like the one type of thing. For me, it's it's like, hey, timing's right. I had gotten to a place kind of professionally where I, you know, wasn't going to be working 80 hours a week at that point and I could put in the time to something else. So I kind of committed to, I guess, selfishly, you know, I've been selfish, if you will, for the first kind of 14 years post-graduation. And a lot of that was focused around career and, and having fun, <laughs> I guess, to, to, to call it what it is. And so I think at that point, I just was, was ready. And um, there is like a little bit of a funny kind of backstory to us meeting. Uh, we had met basically like 10 years prior when she was actually interning at a job in Chicago. And she, we went to a mutual party and she's a couple of years younger than I am. And so she was still in college. I was like 24, 25. I just remember seeing her and I was like, wow, who is this, you know, beautiful Indian girl. <laughs> um, and that was it. And, but I kind of never forgotten her. And then 10 years later, we happened to run into each other at Lollapalooza here in Chicago and uh, kind of just timing was right, hit it off and just then we're getting engaged in Bali and have a kid and a dog and living up in Lakeview and life comes at you fast. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. That's awesome perspective. You mentioned the word uh, like being selfish with yourself, right? And I think a lot of people think about that and think about that when that comes to their careers. You think of that in a bad way, in a good way, in that time that you were, you know, quote unquote selfish? I think it have been in a good way. I think I use that opportunity to get some stuff out of my system 
uh, personally, uh, just having fun. And then also, like I said, professionally, I was able to take some risks that I think would have been difficult to do had I had a kid with, or had a wife with kids and all these responsibilities. And, you know, I made the leap into entrepreneurship when I was 30. And I think there was something about turning 30 that really made me want to do that. I, I always had the itch and I had had different entrepreneurial kind of activities uh, when I was younger, but I never had kind of pursued it as my, my only form of uh, living and income, et cetera. So I think had I had, you know, not been selfish uh, and choose to go that route, I don't know that I could have gone on this path of entrepreneurship. I mean, I don't want to say it's impossible, but it'd just be, it'd have been a hell of a lot harder. So in that regard, like, I don't look at it as a negative. I look at it as, you know, I think it's a positive. If you take life like that, like I, I have to do this, and I think it's important for our listeners to think about this, like there's buckets, right? You've got your professional life, you've got your home life and your wife, you've got maybe a spirituality bucket, maybe a an exercise or hobbies bucket. Like I loved your your little slogan on LinkedIn that said, just a squirrel trying to find a nut. I mean, it sounds like you found a bunch of them, you know, but how do you, how do you segment those buckets now and keep them all kind of harmonious? Well, I, as you can tell by my, that, by that LinkedIn, you know, profile, uh, I definitely am not someone that takes life too seriously. And again, this is something that, that was part of the growth journey for me. I think I was probably a little stiffer if you'd known me in my, my twenties and early thirties, very, again, just kind of Career focused, uh, success focused, and you know had some humbling experiences, and have grown to appreciate just you know finding the humor in most things. You know you can be a uh, a business person and have fun, and so that's something that I I try to do and, and have a good balance of of quality of life too. So you know for me for me personally again I. I've really focused on quality of life uh, at this point in my career. And I think that it's also, it's ironically, or I should say, it's ironic that I've also, you know, I guess, achieved the most success I've had financially. And I, I don't think that's an accident. I think that I've become kind of more of a, a whole, well-rounded person. It's made me, I don't know, I think I'm more passionate about the things I'm working on when I'm working on them. And, you know, touching on some of the uh, other aspects that you, that you just mentioned. So, you know, being physically in shape, I work out, you know, five to six days a week, uh, obviously married now with a kid, they, those require a lot of time. And so I think that you have, you know, those buckets that you talked about and you can be, you need to be a little more disciplined. And so that when I'm focused on work, I'm very focused on work. And if I think you're only working all the time, that you're not going to be as productive. I don't know. I mean, I just, I think it's hard. You, you burn out, you know? And so I think for me, uh, with kind of the schedule that I have now, I'm more productive than I, than I ever was because I'm more focused and I'm enjoying also a key part of it, enjoying what I'm doing. I want to come back to the quality of life. You used to talk about your focus on lifestyle. So maybe go back to that point when you were 30. And then bring us back to here. So you said, I want to go be an entrepreneur. It was time to make that change at 30. 
So talk about that change and then what that meant and how some of those entrepreneurial businesses came about. Sure. So was working kind of in commercial real estate and construction space. The closest thing I would say to kind of a corporate job that I've had, working in office, you know, dressing up every day and TPS reports, right? Those types of things. <laughs> um, and I had, you know, I started dabbling a little bit in investing and I'd invested in a company with some guys that I went to college with that uh, had started a software company, a sales software company. And, you know, I think there was just I don't know, something about the, my life at that point where I just said, you know, I'm not happy with what I'm doing. And this isn't the, kind of the path that I want to be on for the rest of my life. And uh, decided to, you know, talk to those guys and, and, and jumped on board to help uh, grow that company. And uh, that was a that was a grind. You know, you go in kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you know, left kind of like a very good, you know, secure job to go jump into, you know, this this software startup that had like one client at the time and just, you know, really no idea what what I was doing for sure. I don't know if any of us did. And it uh, you know, what you think, oh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna raise capital, we're gonna grow this thing, we're gonna exit for some huge number in two or three years, and like then we're sipping margaritas. And um, you know, like most entrepreneurial stories go, that just was not the case. And uh, so with the, the business that we had started, we ended up pivoting it. It was initially, I'll get into the details, but we kind of pivoted it to uh, more of a sales software from a data room solution. And uh, that was where we you know, achieved kind of a different trajectory. But that was you know, already three years into it, which was you know, a grind of three years of you know, not, not knowing if we're going to make payroll, that type of thing. You know, fortunately, kind of hit our stride and things just kind of worked out at the right time where LinkedIn was a big client of ours. They had success with their salespeople, you know, using the product and, you know, wanted to talk about, you know, integrating you know, our company with theirs. Tim, when you, when you guys, you, you know, as we talked like crossroads, right? And you were just saying, hey, we, we were going down this road and we had to go over here. How hard was it to make that change, that like fundamental change in the business at that point? You're three years in. I mean, was that a part of the business at that point or was that like entirely shifting focus? It was entirely shifting focus. Yeah, it was like we had basically kind of stalled out essentially and we had not achieved the, you know, kind of growth trajectory that you need to at that point. We'd, we'd raised significant capital and so it was just like, hey, we got to do something. And we picked on a particular piece of the software that we felt like was really kind of like the secret sauce. So we were designed for one thing, but we found that customers were using it differently. Like it was meant to be more of like a just a kind of very vanilla sharing of, of secure documents. But we saw that how we were solving the problem, that people were using it more of like a sales approach where things that we did, like it, it put their brand front and center and they really liked that. And so, um, so anyway, so we just kind of honed in on, on some of those really core concepts that, that we were using, but really then designed it to be a sales solution for how salespeople were sharing content with their clients and, uh, and then gave some really valuable analytics uh, back to the sales rep to understand what the client was doing. And so we, again, just kind of focused on those core elements and made it very scalable. So the original software was 
not very scalable. It's just it was kind of a heavy lifting process to sign on new clients. And this was meant more just go to the website, sign up, etc. And so those were massive decisions. I mean, rebranded the company, whole new... I mean, the software was completely new and uh, convinced, fortunately, that uh, we convinced our investors that this was the right move. They continued to support us. And um, so it ended up having you know, a happy ending. But uh, there was definitely times there where you're like, are, are we doing the right thing? I mean, constantly. It's up until the end, up until the sale. It was, you just don't know. But uh, fortunately, you know, it all worked out. Did that pivot with your investors, did it, did it require like a capital call or anything along that line? Or did you have enough sort of... Sure. In- yeah. yeah, I did. I mean, we definitely, we did. We needed more money to, 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 to make this move. Uh, we also elevated our staff. You know, I think we had realized that if you're going to be a technology company, then you should probably have all that in-house, whereas previously we had outsourced most of that to abroad. And so to hire engineers in-house, you know, in the States is expensive, uh, but we just figured that, that was the right move. And so we were still fortunate in the sense that like our legacy product uh, we were continuing to service it and it had recurring revenue. So we had, you know, we still had it. We just realized that that wasn't going to take us to the promised land. So that provided kind of like keep on the lights type of capital. Um, but then we were able to, you know, convince existing and new investors that, you know, we needed to kind of do this pivot to hopefully take us to the next level. So very fortunate that, that that almost everybody was on board with us on that decision. Was it Tim? Was it a, a group of investors? I mean, you say investors. Is it? Did you have five or did you have seventy five? Oh, no, we had a lot. Yeah, it was more. I mean, again, you know, this was uh, you know, it starts out with the family and friends. Yeah, because the thing is, once you take capital, you're kind of always capital raising with the startup. It just it kind of never seems like it ends. And, you know, so yeah, early on, you're just kind of getting whatever checks you can get. And then we did get a little bit more institutional uh, as time went on, but it was a pretty thick cap table. So if you look back on that and kind of how that always structured, would you have done it differently or that's just kind of the way it was? So, you know, talking about, you know, an entrepreneur now looking at the same type of decision, any recommendations or advice you'd give? I'd say the biggest thing would be to kind of make that pivot sooner, right? I think we we kind of held on too long trying to make something that wasn't working work. And I think that looking back on it, you know, we should have done that a, a year or two sooner. Got it. Yeah, I mean, we all have instances in whatever profession you're in where there's certain things or conversations that are 10x, 20x, 100x harder than anything else that you have to do. And I got to imagine the the capital call back to the base is is certainly falls in that category. It does. And not only do we need more money, but hey, we're basically spinning up an entirely new business. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, uh, but I mean, I mean, you know, I, I, I learned so much through that experience. I kind of look at that as my MBA and, you know, just feet to the fire. Uh, it certainly has shaped me in you know, future businesses that now I've launched myself. And uh, I'm still very active 
not very, but I'm 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 active in uh, like the angel investment community. So you know, I kind of keep my my foot in, in, in you know one foot in the in the water with uh, the the, the high tech software startups just by investing. Not something that I want to run personally. And then I've gone decidedly you know very low tech with uh, you know my current businesses that I'm that I'm running. So. You know, so I still I still love it. I just you know it's not something that that whole you know raising tons of capital, burning ton, you know burning cash, hiring a big team and things like that. Those are just it's it's, it's not for everyone. It's not for me. Uh, I've decided that you know my style is more kind of the solopreneur, if you will, and that just provides a better quality of life for what I'm looking for right now. So maybe talk talk about that transition into that your next with utter nonsense and what that was and then kind of the same what's what's beginning to kind of end in that story yeah so so as we were building point drive the software company and again you know kind of not knowing if we were going to make it but also you know just having the entrepreneurial itch still i had this idea with a buddy to create a, a card game like a physical board game it's like a party game akin to like a cards against humanity and we had read this article in ink magazine that kind of described how cards against humanity had brought their game to life and it just seemed like it was kind of a blueprint i was reading this i was like wait a second like this 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 is doable and and we in ha- it had to happen happen to have a a game that we'd been playing for years at like friends lake houses and just you know stupid drinking game basically uh but we had that and, and we were like i think that we could take that and turn it into you know a real product and so we kind of moved very quickly and um, brought that thing to life you know hired comedians to help write content hired a graphic designer to design the packaging and you know coming up with the name did a little kickstarter just to bring it to life uh, or, you know bring it to the market and uh, nothing had been, you know, much of a success to that point. But uh, we at least, I don't know, we, we, we put ourselves out there. And that's one of the big lessons I've learned is that sometimes, you know, the universe comes back to you when you put yourself out there. And uh, basically, the target buyer had come across our, our little project. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, two months after launching, we were going to be brought into all 1800 Target stores. And um, then, you know, all major, a lot of major retailers after that, you know, came in, came in line because of the kind of the validation that we got from Target. And uh, so much different experience, right, from what, what we had with the, with the software company. This was very bootstrapped, uh, very lean, and kind of outsourced everything that we needed. And, um, you know, but it did, it did finally, uh, fortunately, kind of, you know, caught fire pretty quickly, which is, which is unusual. Yeah. Well, you, you kind of ruined it for me because I thought I was just imagining you sitting in the basement, you know, drinking wine or whiskey or something, writing out these cards. But now you're telling me you had content creators too. <laughs> There's, I mean, we tried, so we tried, <laughs> and uh, we got into it, and we're like, we're not that funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think you just you need to be honest with yourself about your skill set, and uh, I think. You know, we realize that there's there's better people out there that are good with uh, writing content, and so we initially, yeah, we reached out to just like our network. You know, we had some friends that were comedians at Second City. 
Uh, a friend that I grew up with was writing for one of the big late night shows out in LA. Another guy was in Hollywood writing movie scripts. So it was just like, hey, you want to have some fun with a you know, stupid side project? And um, so it, it worked out for everyone. That tells me that I didn't, my phone didn't ring, so I'm not no. funny enough. I get it. <laughs> well, Bob, we may, we may have to have like uh, uh, the Climb podcast alumni group come back on and do a whole podcast where we just play the game. Just play, oh, <laughs> it, it'd be good. I have, I have played it many a time. It is good. <laughs> that could be a lot of fun. We might get in a little trouble, but we'd have a good time. So yeah, so the, so the kind of the, the finishing story to that is so so launched that while you know we were building the software company. Shortly after, you know, the software company ended up getting acquired, and the game had kind of you know really uh, hit its stride. And uh, that was about when you know I decided to to take off and go you know, travel for that six months. As soon as I got back, we had launched a second version of the game. We, the original is kind of a, a rated R adult version. And then we came up with a a kid-friendly, family-friendly version uh, based on just customer feedback being like, hey, we love your game, but (laughs) take out kind of half the deck to to play with our kids. And uh, so we we heard enough of that where we thought, you know, the opportunity was there to do a family version. And so, you know, at that point, showing that kind of the concept was, was repeatable and had different variations that could come to life because, or, you know, from it, uh, it just started to get some attention from a few of the the bigger kind of towing game folks that are in the industry. And um, there was a group in particular that uh, had a had a strong affinity for it, and um, ended up acquiring that uh, in 2018, I believe, maybe 2000 end of 2017, but. Um, so sold that sold that company at the end of 2017, early 18. One of the things I thought was really cool you mentioned is you took this blueprint from Cards Against Humanity, as you said, like we read this article, we had this idea. And I think, you know, as we've talked to other people, there's this like fear of, well, how are we going to do it better than what they already did? Like, how is this going to work, right? I mean, Michael and I talked about it when we talked about even the idea of the podcast is, there's millions of podcasts out there. Like, what made you guys go, this is going to work? Like, we got this. Like, this is going to, or are you just like, hey, we can give it a shot. And if we don't work, it doesn't work. I think the early indicator for us was that we personally were users of the product, right? And we hadn't created it. We didn't, it wasn't a finished form, but kind of the, the, the idea, the concept, we had been essentially playing for years. And so we had this validation, I would say, through our, through our friend group. And so then it's just a matter of, hey, you know, do we think that there's other people like us that would enjoy this? And, and then you know, there is some element of like going around and you, know, you share the idea before you start spending a lot of money. You, know, you can go kind of just test your thesis. And so you share the idea with people and you can just tell like, is it clicking? Are they how they're responding? Do they like it? Are they laughing? Are they like stupid? This is dumb, you know. So uh, I think just with some you know basic research on our on our end, uh, just really talking to family and friends about the concept, that everybody just was like, that sounds like a really funny concept for a game, and it just it convinced us to keep going. And then 
as you keep going and as you build momentum, things just kind of start falling in place. You know, the name I thought was a big one. Um, the packaging, you know, so it was just, you just start to feel more confident and the confidence builds and you're willing to take more risks, et cetera. Um, but you don't have to start out, you know, just going after, you know, doing a big, I don't know, you don't have to go all in out of the gate. Like you can take baby steps to start. Yeah, Tim, one of the things I thought was interesting, uh, you kind of hit on yesterday, maybe we can take a deep dive in for our listeners, is, you know, sort of looking at, at two different avenues, right? You have the high growth, cash burning, private equity route you can go, or the bootstrap, you know, on the ground route which seems to be more the route that you go. And you mentioned yesterday, that's a lot more fun. Like, give us a little color around that. Yeah, so you know, I think there's something about in today's environment where these startups are, you know, something very romantic about starting a startup, right? And getting funded. I, I personally, having been through it <laughs> uh, and seen kind of both sides that... You know, I think there's something kind of nice about going slow and not, you know, raising outside capital if you don't need it. And uh, you know, I, I say that with a with a bit of hypocrisy because, as I mentioned, you know, I am an active angel investor, um, and some some businesses do require it, right? So with software in particular, you generally speaking are having to hire engineers who are expensive, and you know, your overhead is just going to be something that you know, unless you're, I don't know, coming from money that you probably can't, you know, afford to get it off the ground. So, so I realized that there's, you know, there's different types of businesses that have different needs in terms of, at least from a capital perspective to start. Uh, but for me personally, again, you know, having kind of done that and, and again, it, it, for some people, that's what they want. And they want the, the high growth, super fast paced. They want to manage a big team. You know, they... They enjoy the process of of raising capital and and working with investors, a group of investors, and you know, and they might just be very tech savvy and they like the technology side of things, et cetera. So there could be a number of reasons that you know it's a better fit for folks that you know want to go that route. For you know, again, me personally, uh, I I kind of stumbled across this physical product CPG doing things on my own approach and. It just it's a it's a better fit you know for for me personally. Um, I mean, there's things you have to adjust to. I mean, for instance, I'm you know working from home most days. Uh, you're not interacting with you know at least in person you know a big team all the time, which nobody is these days anyway. Uh, so this whole transition was not a big deal for me. It's like oh, I got to work from home and not see people. That's that's okay. So yeah, I mean, I just um, and again, like the quality of life. There's just you know, I may wake up on a certain day and be like, hey, I want to go ride my bike or take the dog for an hour and a half walk, right? I mean, it's just, there's not some meeting that I have to be at, you know? So it's not a matter of not working hard. I probably work harder actually now than I have. So I think that's kind of the misconception is that you don't, you know, you don't work hard going this path. That's not, that's not at all what I'm saying. It's just, uh, it's a little bit more on my own terms, I guess, is the difference. And uh, that's just the the place that I am happy being right now. And if I'm lucky enough to, I'll I'll continue down this path. So Tim, when you when you're working on your own, like where do you go 
for advice, counsel, mentorship, bouncing ideas off, things like that? Like, do you have a, a group or do you go outside or, you know, what's, what's that avenue for you when you need that, that extra support? Twitter. uh so i do enjoy twitter i'd say that's kind of my my drug of choice when it comes to social media and i get a lot of value from it so i follow other entrepreneurs that i just respect and they help just give me bits of wisdom and uh, encourage me, you know, in ways that, uh, that I need just to kind of keep going, et cetera. And then quite frankly, working out is like a big thing for me. Um, because I look at it as kind of like my meditation time. It's just, it's this quiet, peaceful, turn off the radio or turn off the you know, cell phone and think. So I call it Tim time. And I just get a lot of Tim time for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour where, you know, you're just, able to think through problems and there's been there's been rumors of you on the peloton being quite the peloton athlete (laughs) (laughs) i do i am a big fan i mean they don't need any uh help these days with where their stock is at but i will say that i i am a devotee of uh of the peloton uh big fan and also i do today i did their i did a yoga session I do their kind of strength classes and I just think they've got, they've executed very well from the technology, the actual physical product, the bike. I think, you know, in my case, I have the bike uh, is just so well done. Uh, The trainers, you know, the talent that they have is fantastic. So I think just from top to bottom, bottom to top, uh, they've just done a really nice job. So. No, that visualization that they created where, you know, whether it's a live class or whatever, and you're, you can see where you're ranked. I mean, it's, it's genius. Yeah. Get the competitive juices flowing. You know, you always want to beat your personal record or sometimes, you know, match up against a buddy or something. And yeah, yeah, it's fun. I think the first time, um, you know, outside of like organized sports, you would have played in, in high school or whatever that really hit me. Was obviously way pre Peloton, but it was the first sprint triathlon I ever did. And you know, it's age banded, and you're, you know, you're relative. I mean, there was like a low end and a high end, and I'd gotten through the swim, which was definitely the the biggest struggle. I mean, I was kind of built to sink, not built to swim. And uh, and then I get on the bike, and I'm feeling pretty good, and this lady comes flying past me, who you know, is built twice as wide as I am. And there's a 43 on her calf. So she's probably good eight years older than me and just goes flying past me. And I'm like, oh, hell with that. (laughs) And I think, you know, and I was on a, like a, a, I can't remember what you call them. It's called a 29er, but it's a, it's a mountain bike and a road bike kind of mixed together. And I think I averaged like 23 miles an hour, which was way faster than I had ever gone. And it just pissed me <laughs> off so motivation. bad. Yeah. Exactly. That process uh, works. I'm, I'm with you on the, on the triathlons. I think, you know, for former athletes, uh, if we can call ourselves that, uh, you know, you miss that. And that was something that for me, it was a, bil- it was a way to kind of get some of those competitive juices back. 
so I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, the triathlon and hope to get back out there soon. So what's, what's next for Tim Swindle? What do you got going now? What is, you know, what's, you got some ideas on the docket, you know, of your next venture? Yeah. So I, after selling the, the board game, just had a lot of fun with it, quite frankly. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to devote the rest of my career to doing things that make me happy, that I find fun, basically, and that provide hopefully fun to other people. And so that's, I'd say, like one kind of overarching theme of, of you know, my professional life at this point is that I will only pursue projects personally that I'm going to, let's say, run that have to be fun. And so with that, obviously, games qualify. And so I've, I've teamed up with uh, another, another guy and actually two, two different guys um, to launch a, a, a toy and game company. And we have a couple new ones out there. We are coming out with a new one later this year. And uh, so that's been a blast and, you know, still early on in, in this latest venture, but, you know, it's going, it's going well so far. So excited about that. And then the newest one, uh, I can't say it without laughing, is uh, it's a uh, adult themed ornament company called Pornaments. And, uh, nice. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> Um, so it's something that, uh, like most good ideas was a, uh, a conversation over drinks with a buddy a couple of years ago. And we just thought it'd be hilarious to come out with, you know, already ornaments and call them ornaments. That was it. That was the conversation, but it just, it never left my brain. And, you know, being an entrepreneur, there's always ideas that pop in that I think are going to be the next big thing. And, they typically turn out to be the dumbest idea ever. And what was I thinking? But tournaments, believe it or not, uh, I just couldn't shake it. And uh, I looked at, I looked into it kind of right away a couple of years ago. And basically, someone had beat us to it. So someone had acquired the IP and the trademarks and, and, and the domain for tournaments.com. And this was something, you know, most businesses, I would say the name could be whatever, but this just kind of felt too perfect. And so I was like, it needs to be that. So I just looked into it some more and, and realized that they had acquired the IP, but they hadn't really done too much with it. Like they, I think, attempted at one point, but they weren't actively selling them. So I kind of figured that this was going to fall by the wayside and they were going to relinquish it at some point and I would just be there to scoop it up. Fast forward three or four years. And I would kind of check on it periodically. And again, this, the, the idea just never... And I'd mention, again, kind of similar thing with the game where I'd mention it to people and people just would die laughing when I would explain the concept. And they'd even come back to me around Christmas time and be like, I, you know, I'm looking for like a gag gift. Like, did you ever do that tournaments thing? And so I was just like, I have to figure this out. So I basically tracked down the company that, that had initially tried it and was maintaining, you know, the IP... And I, it turns out that they're, a, they're the largest glass ornament manufacturer in the country. And this was kind of like a fun little side project that they tried. And basically, it just didn't work out for them. They had a very different approach than I have. So I got in touch with the CEO, told him a little bit about my background. 
her, it's a woman CEO and her and I just hit it off. And she uh, let me basically acquire the IP and we are now partners. And so they've become my manufacturer and I relaunched the brand late last year. And just to kind of, again, test the waters to see if this was something that, you know, anybody else would find interesting or funny or whatever. And it uh, basically, I sold out of them almost a month and a half and uh, (laughs) I'm going to be, you know, doubling down, not even doubling down, I'm, I'm, you know, going big this year. So hopefully uh, it continues to go in the right direction. That's so good. That is so good. How does the distribution channel work on that? Are you in retail stores or is it all online or how does that work? So I'm figuring that out is the short answer. But no, so so the previous company, they, they have uh, as their business model, they have a retail only strategy. And you know, as you could imagine for a tournament, uh, not many retailers are probably going to take that on. Yeah, so, that's not sitting the, in the target aisle, right? Not like, probably sitting <laughs> in the target aisle. No, no, they're not a good, not a good fit for the brand. And, and I will say, you know, as much as it's silly and all these things, like there's some very real business reasons for why I wanted to do this business. I, you know, I still work with retailers, and I love retailers. But I am I'm fascinated by the rise of the direct to consumer movement, and I I feel like you know that's just the business that I've wanted to try, and I felt like this is the perfect business to do direct to consumer because there's not going to be many retailers that would take it anyway, you know. So. So that was it. And so, so yeah, so with them, they had retailers. And that, again, like, you know, there's going to be the small kind of like weird gag gift shops or whatever, but, you know, you're not going to get the big target Walmart order. And that's more of their bread and butter is working with kind of major retailers. Um, and then and in general, we're going through this shift right now to e-commerce. And so that's kind of hopefully skating to where the, the puck is going type of a thing that, you know, I want to be on board with. And so... Yeah, so for me, it's uh, it's largely e-commerce. I've got a website. You know, this year I'll be spinning up Amazon, maybe an Etsy site, but it's going to be all through basically my own channels. And I was hoping to rely on social media as a big distribution channel for at least from a marketing perspective. That was the the original thesis, but it turns out that they have rules against <laughs> you know the kind of the rated r nature of theme uh of, of, of things with uh with, our, with these elements and products in general so so anyway so so i'm still figuring that piece out as far as just raising awareness etc you know working with we'll just say kind of on-brand type companies let's say like a the chive or something like that uh barstool sports right those could be opportunities for distribution for me um that i'm currently working on I have like so many questions that probably are not appropriate for this podcast that I want to ask. <laughs> I will say sometimes people's like, when I say the name, they go to like porn stars, like as ornaments. And I, that's not it. And it's really meant to be more of like a uh, joke. Thanks for answering you know? that question. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's Santa like in his underwear. It's yeah, like gotcha. Mr. Okay. Mr. Claus going after it. Gingerbread people going after it. It's, you know, there's some stuff a little more risque, but it's really meant to be just stupid, funny, you know, Christmas characters in positions and things that, you know, wearing things that you wouldn't normally see them wearing. <laughs> I love it, Tim. It's so good. <laughs> 
Actually, that's what I mentioned before we got on this. I I just got uh, you know so so last year we we launched with just kind of their old inventory. So that was part of going through the process. They had some excess inventory. I was like, just give that to me. I'll see if this you know is something that is still relevant. So we have a bunch of new ones coming out this year, and I'm super excited. I just I just they just arrived, and uh, I just teased them on my Instagram feed. Um, so there, there's all right. I'm pu- I'm pulling it up right now. I mean, I gotta <laughs> I gotta look on Instagram right now. That's and great. I've got a couple and surprises then... that I'm not that I'll be sharing later on this year. That will hopefully it'll uh, try to think of a way to say it without ruining it, but. Let's just say our, these our, are good. Um, no, no oh, one's no one's safe, including our president. Is I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> oh, that's so good. I don't know how Michael feels about that down in Texas, but <laughs> hey, look, man. I mean, you, if you're in public office, you better you better be ready, right? Right. <laughs> um, now, you know, Bob. We were talking about gifts for all of our podcast guests. I mean, we may have just come up with a, a home Let's run get more here. unique than that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, Tim, where can, where can everybody find, find them at? And we'll put, uh, we'll put in the show notes for everybody too. Pornaments.com. Yeah. Tim, as you, you know, we, we've had a lot of conversation with some of our guests around mentors, influential people in their life. I mean, do you have a couple, two or three or one that stick out to you that have, have just been an inspiration for you or kind of that rock to lean on when you need, you know, him or her? I would say that one of the guys that I worked for in my in my 20s, so after I finished trading, I moved into real estate and construction industry and uh, worked for a guy that I'd kind of grown up uh, being very close with, and he had built, uh, you know, what started out as you know a very small operation into uh, one of the largest in the country, and so that was someone that I was you know close with growing up and and looked up to, and then had the opportunity to you know work directly for him, and you know so I'd say that definitely was one, you know, but outside of that, I think the most of mine come from books. I really enjoy reading books about entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs. One that I don't know if it's like I want to say, you know, these like really deep philosophical books, but and so some of them are cliche, but I, I really enjoyed Shoe Dog, uh, the Phil that Phil Knight did and about his building of, of Nike. I think it's uh, it's just a very entertaining but a great, you know, t- tons of lessons uh, that are filled in uh, in the book uh, with the story of on- entrepreneurship. And so that one in particular sticks out as, you know, one that I enjoyed and, you know, found inspiration. Sidebar on that one. Did you see and watch The Last Dance on ESPN? Yes. Loved with it. With Jordan. I love that piece where he's like, didn't even want to go to Nike, didn't want to do anything there. And then, I mean, look what, what happens from there. I mean, there's got, I'm guessing that's a big part of the book, right? It was. Yeah. That, I mean, that was a huge score. I mean, that took them from, you know, this track and field, you know, kind of niche shoe um, into, and I think they'd done some tennis stuff maybe at that time um, into very much mainstream basketball and t- taking over Converse and, um, so yeah, just a fa- I mean, it's a fascinating story, and uh, to build it into this kind of global iconic brand, you know, in our lifetime too, right? I mean, the guy's still alive. I mean, this hasn't been around forever, 
you know, and then as, just because you brought it up, I mean, especially as a kid from Chicago, though, with that the Michael Jordan story, kind of reliving all of that from our childhood and getting to see how that guy just had, I mean, man, would you not want to be against him? Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, I loved, I mean, it was, wasn't it his mama that said, you're getting on that plane? I mean, she convinced him to go out and see Nike. Uh, yeah, that was such a great, how all of that came together with the timing of COVID-19 and everybody being pent up in a home with nothing to watch. And then that gets released as a 10-part series. That was just unbelievable. Yeah, that if, if, yeah, I know. It's like, does he need any more help? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, it's like the guy, you know, I think, right, he owns the Bobcats. He's got his, you know, Jordan uh, brand, et cetera. And then the timing of this was 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 great. But yeah, I mean, that was just, I thought it was a really done documentary. And it was kind of fun to get a behind the scenes look at how he lives his life. And one of the lines that I loved from him, I mean, so clearly him just being this, you know, outrageous competitor and uh, will stop at nothing type of thing. And but they were giving him crap about his gambling and you know, like, listen, he's like, I don't have a gambling problem. I have a competitiveness problem. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> yeah. His, his attitude of just winning was, was yeah. incredible. All he, he wanted all to costs. do was win. Yeah. It doesn't matter who you got to run over to piss off, you know, and listen, he's not, most loved guy right um but that's not what he's trying to be you know he's trying to win so definitely i mean talked about inspiration i mean michael jordan sure you know i love too how i mean with decades behind them actually competing on the floor like there is no love lost with him and isaiah thomas i mean it is still <laughs> alive and well it's like you guys are just never going to stop but you know I mean, obviously just watching it all and thinking about watching those games with my dad or my brother or whatever growing up, I think one thing I really took away is that, you know, it can be lonely at the top. And his because of the choices that he made, I mean, he was a pretty isolated guy in order to be able to do what he did. But, um, wow, just fantastic. Who, who was your sports hero growing up, Michael? You know, I'd have to put Nolan Ryan up there being from Texas. I, I, mean, I knew that was, uh, I knew it, it had was to be coming. a Texan. You know, know don't, don't, don't come try to charge the mound on that guy. He's going to hook you <laughs> like a, like a steer and tell you who's boss. Um, you know, <laughs> that's exactly right. Big sports family. We grew up watching. I mean, you got to go back to like, you know, one of my dad's favorite. And then I was a catcher was Roy Campanella. And just how he played the game at that time, um, that would have been a big one. I don't know. The I list like Pudge Rodriguez, was another a awesome, awesome catcher. You know, that's the that that's the quarterback of the field, man. Right, it is hardest you, job. You, I was at, we were having this conversation last night. I was with a, a couple of buddies, and uh, we we're I don't know how we got to this. We were actually we were talking about the last dance too, and and said, well. Who and somebody said Walt, Walter Payton. I said I I love Walter Payton, and then I said, but after I remember growing up and how much I loved Bo Jackson. I mean, Bo and Bo knows and that whole thing. And I mean, the guy was playing baseball, football. You know, the guy ran so hard he dislocated his hip. I mean, come on, the guy he was just he was an animal. 
a physical specimen. <laughs> Not something they're saying Rem- about me. Reminiscent of myself in high school a little bit, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's why. <laughs> but, well, Tim, we're, we're coming up in an hour as we kind of wrap things up. What what would you, you know, in, in, in Michael always like to say, like, at, at the end, we like to ask, what what would you like people to know more about Tim, you know, as we end things here? You know, what, what you know, Mike, what's your saying you like to always say? Well, it's it's not what you know, it's who knows you. Oh, interesting. I like that. So, yeah. you know, what would you like everybody to kind of know about about Tim? Uh, just because you threw out a quote, I was going to throw out one of one of my favorites, and it's uh, "Live a life that makes a story worth telling." Tim, you couldn't uh, put a put a bow on it better with you talking about success focus versus you being lifestyle focused. And I mean, I could just see the passion, and I know you well enough to know like you guys are just living life and happy and all that, and it's just so great to see. So. Thank you so much for sharing everything today and being open with us and and spending the hour with us today. My pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me and uh, good luck and continued success with both your careers and this podcast. And you know, excited to uh, see where this goes. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.